Heavenly Father, we stand before you, your word. And I do pray for us all. There is a sense of inadequacy in me as I bring your word to your people. But I also trust in your power. So Lord, help us. Help me preach your word as it is given to me. And we pray that we can receive them as it is given to us so that we might be nourished and encouraged and empowered to do your word in our lives. Thank you and commit this time to you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was hearing that children's talk given by, I think it was Daniel, wasn't it? Daniel? Yeah. Um, there was a question that was in my mind and the question was, have I done that? Have I tried to hide my wrongdoing from my parents? And then um, the answer was not only yes, but yes, many, 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 many times. And I think uh, we all felt the same. But obviously the marvelous um, consolation is that if we bring our confession of sins to the Lord God, God is always loving and gracious and He's so merciful that He does not deal with us according to our sins, but He pardons and forgives our sins. And, and that was really a reassuring message, uh, which kind of condenses the message that we are going to hear from First John uh, chapter 1 and chapter 2 today. And every time I stand before any pulpit in any place, uh, there is crisscross of two feelings in my heart. One is encouragement, uh, that I'm encouraged by the Word of God, encouraged by faithful people to come, who come to hear the Word of God, but also there is a sense of fear, a fear of God, a reverence before the Lord God, and the, the very fact that a mere man like me or anyone who stands behind the pulpit to bring the Word of the Almighty God. And I don't know why. I don't know why God has chosen this method, but God has chosen to preach His perfect and complete and holy word through imperfect and sinful and still very inadequate men and sometimes women talking about not preaching but teaching that is given to the people of God through His people. But nonetheless, that's what God has chosen to do. And I just trust that he will do his will because we know that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and it is profitable for doctrine and it is also profitable for correction, instruction in righteousness and reproof. We are corrected and, and rebuked and we are instructed in righteousness and also we are given that through his teaching. So let's just commit our time to him, trusting that he will do his work through his word and through my lips and in your hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit this morning. This may be too obvious, but I'd like to open up my message by saying this. Christianity does not work without Christ. And that's very, very obvious. If you know anything about Christianity, you know that Christianity is about believing in God and believing in Christ. So to say that Christianity does not work without Christ, that is so simple and very obvious. And yet, there are people who I have come across in the past who believe in God, but yet fail to believe in Jesus Christ. And you know that there are people who believe in, for example, the Old Testament God, but not the New Testament Messiah, Jesus Christ. They may hold on to the Old Testament, the Bible, but they do not believe the New Testament. They believe in God, in other words, but they do not believe in Jesus Christ. And of course, you cannot be saved through that kind of half faith. And God says that those people are like some kind of you know, pancake in the Old Testament. Uh, it's like a bread, an unleavened bread that they baked on pans, 
uh, but not turned. It's like fig that cannot be eaten. It's a vine or grapes that is bad that you cannot eat. It's, it's good in some sense, but it is not completely good according to God's way. So you must believe in God and you must believe in Jesus Christ. And you know that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. In Acts 4.12, it says, Nor is there a salvation in any other, for there is no other, man, no other name given among men under heaven by which we must be saved. It is only through Christ that we can be saved. And along that line, John is now telling us about Christ. Now, we know that John wrote his gospel, the gospel of John, and he told us about the deity of Christ in great detail. And in chapter 20, verse 30, he says, the reason why he wrote was for us to know Christ and to find eternal life through him by believing in him. Now, he also wrote 1 John, 2nd and 3rd John, as well as Revelation. And the purpose why he wrote 1 John, this epistle to the churches, according to verse 4, is that we may have joy that is full and complete in us. Another purpose he wrote, this epistle to us, according to chapter 2, verse 2, is, uh, chapter 2, verse 1, is that we may not sin, so that we may live a life without sinning, uh, not perfectly in a sense, but without um, willfully sinning, uh, in a way pursuing God's righteousness and sanctification, so that we will be sanctified day by day. So my title for today's message is our goal, or goal for Christian living. And that goal for Christian living, in one short word, is sanctification. And sanctification, you know, that, is, uh, that sanctification is done only by the grace of God. And we are going to go through these passages and see what we can learn about sanctification and how we might have that joy that is full and complete and also that we might live our lives in the most pleasing way to God without uh, living in habitual sin, but living a life that is continually sanctified by God. Now, first of all, in verse 5, he says that God is light. And this is the message that he wanted to pass on to in verse um, 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light. God is light. He talks about also walking in light, not walking in darkness. And walking in light is to confess our sins when we come to know our sins, that we confess our sins. But when I looked at the first verse 5 and pondered about the meaning of that and consulted many other commentaries and so on, I stumbled upon, well, I actually stopped at this phrase, this expression that God is light. And I tried to find some other expressions or other verses that say the same thing. And I found that Jesus, for example, said, I am the light of the world. And he also said, you are the light of the world and you ought to shine like the light. And God also, here he says, is light. And there was a very subtle difference that I found. In fact, if you look at the subsequent verses, it says, if you walk in the light. There's a definite article, the light. But here in verse five, I notice that it says simply God is light. God is light. It doesn't say God is the light, or it doesn't say God is a light even. God is light. And this is a very fitting analogy, I thought. God is light. In the Old Testament, we often see God as light. He manifests himself as light, sometimes as Shekinah glory, in his tabernacle, in the temple. And even Moses, who spent some time with God on Mount Zion, 
had his face shining so much that the people had to put a towel covering on his face so that they would not see the glory of God that was reflected on the face of Moses. God also led them by the pillar of fire, fire, light, very similar. So we see that in the Old Testament that God is con conveyed or God is portrayed as light. And even Jesus said, I am the light of the world in that very temple where they were going through that festival of light in John, John chapter 8 and John chapter 9. But in thinking about why God is light or why God uses light to describe himself, I remembered what I learned in my high school days in physics class. And as I remember it, if I remember it correctly, uh, it says that we cannot define light like some other definite substance or matters. We can say that this is timber and this is brick and that's glass and so on. But when describing light, it, it is very difficult to put a finger on light and say that light is this. Instead, we were taught things like light is like energy. It transmits energy, heat and visible light. Light is uh, like a radio wave, a radio electromagnetic wave, so it, it has some properties of wave, but it is not exactly wave. Wave usually requires a medium through which it can travel, but light still can travel through the vacuum. And people, some people say, well, there must be some kind of medium which we do not know of, and we, we call that dark matter or something that we don't see, we don't know that they exist, but they must be there. So there is a limitation on how we can define light. And when I thought about that, this analogy that God is light is very suitable because God is a little like that. I mean, we know God. We learn about God and we hear from his word and we can all say that I have some knowledge of God. But we cannot easily define God in single term. In fact, if we can, or if anyone can define God completely or perfectly, then we would be saying that we have perfect knowledge of God, which is not possible on this side of heaven, and that would be saying, like, I am God. And we know that that is not true. We are instead continually growing in the knowledge of God, and we can never say we have complete knowledge of God yet. And yet at the same time, as much as there's so much we can learn about God all the time throughout our life, Everybody knows what light is like. Even a little child can tell the difference between the light and darkness. And we know what light is. We may not be able to describe it in scientific terms, but we know what light is. And we know what darkness is. This ability to perceive light and darkness is so inherent in us. It is so easy. And it is like that with God. We, we may not be able to define using all those theological jargons to define God, but we all know God. Even a little child knows God. You teach them about God and that he's holy and, and perfect, <clears throat> and at the same time he's loving and gracious and merciful. Everybody can understand that. And that's why gospel is not only for people who are educated or people who are so clever or intelligent, but the gospel is for everybody even those who may not be so educated by the things of this world. <clears throat> so you don't need a PhD degree to know about God, just as you don't need a degree in some physics to be able to tell what light is from darkness. You don't need 
a theological degree to know God, we can all know God. And that's why God said, God is light. When it says also God is light, grammatically speaking, without any definite or indefinite article, it's like saying that um, sky is blue. It is describing. Light is noun, but at the same time, it is acting a little bit like an adjective. So it describes what God is like, that God is light. Light as we can not touch light or kind of grasp light. You know, we cannot do that with God, but we know that, that God is there. If we say that we are under light, as it is now, then we can say also we are under the light of God or we are under God. So just going back to verse 5, this is the message which you have heard from him and declared to you. So all I am doing is to convey the message from the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is in fact what every preacher should be doing. I am not coming up with my own words, but I am simply giving you the word of God as it is, as it is given to me. And it is that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. In him is no darkness at all. And that's where um, limitation of this analogy comes. Because in this world, wherever there is light, there is darkness, some darkness. And even now, you have the sunlight shining through the window, but I can see the shadow. So I can say that there is light, but there is also darkness in comparison. But it says here that God is light and in him is no darkness. It's almost as it were that God is shining from all directions so that there is no cast shadow of God. Indeed, um, that's what I think it was in James that says, and there's no shadow of turning in God. So God is light, but he is not like some light from the sun or light from the, some electrical light, but he is light and there is no darkness in him. And that means if you stand under the light of God, there is nothing you can hide in that shadow. And as we heard from the children's talk, it is in fact a blessing to be able to stand before the light of God and in fact um, stand before him without anything that we can hide before him because God reveals these things to us so that we, he would bless us by giving us that blessing of forgiveness. So God is light. In him is no darkness at all. And that's why he says, John says in verse 6, so if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, in other words, you all understand what that means. Uh, there's nothing difficult in that. If you walk in darkness, if you walk in sin, if you walk in some shameful living, and yet you, you say that you have fellowship with him, uh, you might be able to do that by, say, coming to church and coming to some church fellowship. That is to say that I have some fellowship with God, but if you still walk in darkness, then you're lying. And you do not practice the truth. It is not a lie that we have the light of God, but it is a lie that I am righteous or I have no sin that I need confession. I need uh, to confess and receive forgiveness for. So that is a lie. So you do not practice the truth. But instead in verse 7, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So God says, shining all his light upon us. Don't hide anything. Just come and confess those sins. And as we see here also in verse 9 and 10, we have that blessing of forgiveness of sin. And that is to live in truth. Now, to live a Christian life is not to live a perfect life. And no one can do that. 
And if you talk to people who do not believe in Jesus or Christianity, sometimes you hear that. You know, I, I can't live a, a model life like a Christian or like even you. So I'd rather just stay here and enjoy my life in this um, secular world and not be in the church. And, and they misunderstand our message. Our message is not that you should live perfect life or you should refrain from all these um, sins that you do in your life. We're not simply placing some regulations or some set of rules by which we must, we must live our lives. We're simply offering forgiveness for the very sins that you're doing in your lives. But when people hear about Christianity, about the invitation to come to Christ, they misunderstand and think that they have to come to, to church and live a very restrained and kind of model and moral life. And that's not the message we preach. But at the same time, even though we are redeemed and forgiven of our sins, we know that we still have remaining sin. And that's where our failure is. And even if we sin, the marvelous comfort and consolation is that we have an advocate and we have forgiveness that is promised and he is faithful so that he would forgive us as he said. I guess the, the question is this. I mean, we all know that we have sins, and even non-believers know to some degree that they have some sin in their life. But I think as a modern kind of Western society in Australia, we don't like to talk about bad points or sins. When you talk to people about sin, you know, they become offended and we become offended and we don't like to hear about sin. But the test for genuine faith is what we do with our sin. So when you hear about sin, what do you do? You know, what do we do with our sin? Do you confess or do you deny? Do you try to hide it by throwing it away into the bush? <clears throat> or do you confess and just bring it to God honestly? It is easy to deny. It is easy to just forget about that and then move on. And it is in fact very easy to hear people telling you that you're okay. They're just trying to cheer you up. And everybody does that, it's okay, it's not your fault. And sometimes people go to even uh, some, some lengths and, and say that, um, you know, it's your genes. It's your uh, gene to do this, it's your propensity to do this. And everybody has some of that and you don't need to, you shouldn't feel guilty about that. That's kind of modern psychological approach. But what do we do? It's easy to deny, but it is somewhat hard to confess. Perhaps, you know, when you hear about sins, uh, when you hear about your wrongdoing through someone else's mouth, you know, what do, what do I do? What do you do? You know, perhaps you've experienced some of that even this morning. You know, we, we do that, we go through that all the time. When people tell me about my bad points, do I try to hide it? Do I get offended and, and do I defend myself? Or do I just acknowledge and say that, yes, I do have that and I need to confess and receive God's forgiveness? As all preachers who faithfully preach the Word of God, I sometimes get criticized for talking too much about sin. It was quite um, refreshing to hear the word sin mentioned a number of times in children's talk this morning. You don't hear that a lot in many churches. But it is in fact good that we hear about our sin 
and it's all for a blessing. And when I preach about sin or describe sin, confessing sin, repentance, and all of those things, people say, well, that is a kind of um, Puritan kind of preaching from about two or 300 years ago. It is ancient. It is uh, hellfire, damnation preaching that people don't like to hear. Not friendly, not kind, not very uplifting, but it is depressing. And they say that it'll drive people away. People want to be encouraged and they want to feel good when they come to church. They don't want to feel bad and walk out church depressed with their shoulders down. That's what I hear from time to time. Well, you go to the Bible and Jesus often rebuked sins of sinful people. And people obviously who reacted with retaliation and violent reaction were the people who were not saved, hypocrites, Pharisees, and scribes, and all these religious people. On the other hand, people who are contrite and penitent in their hearts, like the tax collectors and all these prostitutes and sinners, they embraced the word of Jesus Christ and they were saved. They were blessed. And Jesus said, I came for these people who knew, who know that they are sinful people. I didn't come for the righteous, just as a physician is not needed for people who are well, but those who are sick. I came for sinners to repentance that leads to salvation. So we should be talking about sin, and we should know about sin. In fact, um, it is for our benefit that we study about sin and how sin operates. And you'll find that the more you study about sin, especially sin in your own life, that you'll be able to somehow differentiate yourself and your sin, not, not to a degree that, you know, it's not me, but it is sin that is doing so, I'm not guilty, and so on. Uh, that's a kind of very dualistic, detached view of sin, which is not right. Um, but you'll be able to differentiate your sin and, and yourself to a degree so that you don't feel personal or you don't feel personally um, emotionally fired up to defend yourself for that sin. You will be able to, in fact, look at it from a third person's perspective more objectively and say, yes, I, I need to confess. And this is the Spirit's leading, and this needs to be confessed, and I need to be sanctified. And as we go through that, you know, day by day and, and one by one, we are conformed to the image of Christ, and that is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And that's what John is saying here. You need to dwell under the light. And if you say you have fellowship with God, then you're under the light, and when you're under the light, you see everything. There's nothing you can hide. And when you see all these things, God reveals all these things, then you confess and you can be forgiven. However, if you deny that, then you're practicing false or lies. You do not practice the truth. And um, it says that you're lying to yourself. And in fact, um, you make God a liar. And his word is not in us. So here is the first point. Uh, there's an outline in the back of the bulletin I, I noticed. The first point is that Christians confess their sins and we have a blessing of forgiveness. Christians confess their sins and we have blessing of forgiveness. Because we have tasted the goodness of salvation, that is eternal redemption, we are habitual confessors or professors of our sin because we know how tasty forgiveness is. 
we yearn and desire and long for that all the more in our lives. And as you confess your sin, you are given that marvelous forgiveness as God promised. So I believe that you should, we should hear about sin. You know, I should hear about my sin more and study about our sin and know our sins inside out. And it's very interesting if you go through Pauline epistles, you know, he wrote his uh, epistles throughout his ministry life over about 30 years and he wrote uh, about 13 books in the Bible. And if you actually study them in chronological order, you kind of can observe how he progressed in his faith. He becomes saved in Acts um, chapter 9, and then he goes through these uh, missionary journeys and he writes letters to the Galatian church and, and Corinthian church and Roman church, and then uh, he writes to Ephesian church, Philippian church, and Thessalonian church. Uh, if you actually order them in, in, in sequence, in chronological order, and if you find the verses that describe about himself, you can observe that uh, he often said things like, I am an apostle of Jesus Christ. I write to you as an apostle with certain authority. And he needed to do that <clears throat> with especially um, churches like Corinthian church. <clears throat> Excuse me. But at the same time, as he progresses in his faith, he uses expressions like, um, I am nothing. Uh, Apollos watered, and, uh, and I planted, and Apos Apollos watered, but God is the one who grew, grew you, and, and neither Apollos nor I am nothing, are nothing. But if you go to the end of his life, like if you go to these pastoral epistles like First and Second Timothy and Titus, he says things like, I am a chief of sinners. Now his view of himself in his epistles, you can kind of say it is going down and down and down. Of course, you know, he and, and along with every Christian, that is us, we are all precious in the sight of God, not because of what we are, but because of the imputed righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. But the more you know about you and your sin, the picture becomes somewhat more grim. You know, when I got saved many years ago, <clears throat> I knew that I was a sinner and I needed salvation and forgiveness of sins. But as I lived my life and studied the Bible more and more, I was able to see more sin in my life. And I wondered, have I become more sinful after I became a Christian? The answer was no. And I heard many other Christians say the same thing. And I learned that it's not because the amount of sin increased I, as I got saved and lived my life as a Christian, but the perception or understanding or even discovery of my sin became greater as I lived my life. So you find more sins that used to be in your life. You didn't know before, but now you see it. Before, you didn't. So you, you feel as if you are more sinful than now, now than before, but it is not that, but it is because we see more now than before. If you... Um, read um, one of the sermons that Spurgeon actually preached. Spurgeon once said in his um, sermon this, I'm quoting, he said, thank you, thank you so much. He said, um, brother, if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks of you to be. If he charges you false on some point, yet be satisfied. For if he knew you better, he might charge 
the accusation, or he might change the accusation, and you would be no gainer by the correction. If you have your moral portrait painted and it is ugly, then be satisfied, for it only needs a few blacker touches and it would be still nearer the truth." End quote. Now, the point is very clear. The point is that we ourselves have better and more moral picture of ourselves than other people. In other words, if I put it simply, you have better image of myself than I do about myself. And when I said uh, good morning this morning and I greeted uh, and you greeted me this morning, you probably thought I was a, a fine man, fine preacher or pastor or, or whatever. But you know, I, I thought to myself, no, uh, I, I'm not as, as well as uh, you think I am because I see all the things in my heart. Of course, there are the spiritual side, but there's also not so spiritual side in me as well. And, and I know that I am not perfect. So yes, I might have this portrait painted, and it, it is ugly, but all I need to do is to put a little more blacker touches, and it'll be nearer the truth. So other people have better image than I do about myself. And that point leads to this very practical, applicable truth, and that is this. If someone comes to you, like Spurgeon says in his preaching, and he thinks or she thinks ill of you, and perhaps that person might even voice that. You know, um, you know um, I need to tell you this, you know, it wasn't really good that you did this, or you, you shouldn't have done that, and, and that was not very godly. Um, you should have done it this way or that way, and, and that would have been better. That's probably true, and there's probably more truth in that. And that means the way that person sees me is probably closer to truth than the way I see about myself. And that's true humility, isn't it? To see myself as God sees, and that's only possible by the power of the Holy Spirit because natural man doesn't do that. You go uh, and walk up to someone on the street and say that, uh, Mister, you're a sinner. What kind of response would you get? Probably a punch in your face. Uh, actually, there was a man who used to do that in Georgia Street. I forget his name, um, but he was known as that um, street evangelist, Georgia Street evangelist. You can do some Googling and some research, and, and he used to do to just that. He used to walk up to someone in the street out of, uh, out in, in the, out of blue. He would be hiding, usually, uh, on some corner, and then he would just walk up to a person and say, uh, you need to be saved. You're a sinner. You need to repent and be saved. And um, he had uh, quite a you know, ministry career doing that for all his life. And there was an evangelist or pastor or Christian who wanted to follow that. And the first time he tried to do that, he was uh, punching his face. Uh, he, he got a black eye. So it might not work for everybody, but that, that's the response, isn't it? That's the reaction. You go and talk to people and tell them that we are sinful, we are sinners, and we need God's forgiveness. Um, not many people respond to that in positive way. Of course, you might need to be uh, plowing the field, as it were, working with that person for, for some time, building a relationship, uh, helping that person to, to see that the Bible is indeed true and God is gracious and loving as well as holy and just. But nonetheless, even we ourselves have that natural man still remaining sin in us. So when someone comes and talks to me and, and says to me that I was sinful in some point, in some practice, my natural side says, no, 
defend it or deny it or run from it. But the spiritual side says, yes, yes, that's right. It might, it might be that you might have to bite the bullet and um, just you know, burn your pride, but you do have to confess and, and then you have forgiveness from God. You know, when, when you don't do that, the Bible says you are in the darkness. So if you're in the light, then we confess our sins. So in verse 9, look at verse 9, it says, If we say that we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. You're lying. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He repeats it again by saying in verse 10, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Notice also in verse 10 and verse 9, and even verse 10, it begins with each of the verses begins with if. And if is not so much a, uh, a condition. Some people just reading this out of context might think, okay, well, if I do this, uh, I'll get forgiveness. Well, it's not really that. Um, it, is, it is not so much a condition or even imperative that you have to go and confess in order to earn forgiveness. We know that it's not true. But it is a kind of indicative, which is a statement of truth. Now, if you're saved, that is, if you're a genuine Christian, then you confess your sin and God will forgive you. And notice also in verse 9, it says, if we confess our sins, if we confess our sins, it is in plural, referring uh, to our sins that we do in our lives, actual sins, not just generic sin in general, um, because when you talk to some people, uh, do you know that you're a sinner and you need repentance and forgiveness of God to, to be saved? And they say, yes, well, everybody's a sinner and we are all sinful and we are all sinners. Um, it's somewhat easy to say that. You, you place yourself in kind of, you know, corporate sinful people and I'm just one of them sort of mentality. I, I'm not the only one. But it, we know that Christian faith is very personal. It has to be personal and individual. So it is saying, if we, now we is simply a literary device to say that these are what Christians do. If we say that we have no sin, then we are lying. But if you confess our sins, if we confess our sins, all our sins. The implication is that, that we confess our actual sins, every sin that we do in our lives. And then He is righteous, He is just, and He's faithful to forgive us our sins. I also um, had a question when I came to verse 9. He says, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And then I stopped there for a moment and read it again. He is faithful and just or righteous to forgive us our sins. Just look at the sentence. It says, it is just to forgive sins. Now why not say things like, God is merciful when he forgives our sins. He is gracious to forgive our sins. Why does he say he is so loving to forgive, our, forgive us our sins? Why does he say, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins. Now let's flip that and ask a question. Let me ask you a question. Is it just to forgive sins? Or is it righteous to forgive sins? Is it right to overlook transgression or trespass? 
A very simple example, you have a courthouse, a judge, and a criminal. The person just, de just declared guilty. Is it right to forgive that criminal? Well, the short answer is no. We need justice, and that's why people you know, send these bad people to the court and to, to prisons and so on. And they say that if um, someone, for example, who murdered someone uh, gets only a few months of jail term, what do we say? That's injustice. You know, he or she deserves much more, many more years of imprisonment if it was willful murder. And, and we struggle with all these judges who are so lenient on these very you know, clear crimes or criminals. And yet, and, and as we all are, we tend to be very generous when it comes to our own situation. And then, you know, we read verses like this, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and then we just go pass, uh, pass by it, um, you know, right, without really noticing what it really means. Now, it's more consistent to say, I suppose, um, God is righteous, God is merciful to forgive us our sins, not God is righteous in forgiving our sins. The answer is to the question, is it just for God to forgive us our sins? Well, the short answer is no, but you can say, unless, unless someone paid the penalty for our sins. And that someone is Jesus Christ. Unless the penalty is justly paid. So without Christ, it is not just. And that's why I said at the beginning, Christianity does not work without Christ because without Christ, all we have is just, righteous, vengeful, and wrathful God who judges sinners. But when Christ comes to this world, he came to take away our sins and to bear our sins on him and to pay the penalty in full. You might get some junk mails quite often, and I got just um, another one a few days ago. And this was a mail from some credit card company and say, you know, balance transfer and 0% for so many months and so on. So, it, you know, it was quite tempting to have a look at it. Um, and, and, you know, if you have some credit card debt, then that could be a good thing. Balance transfer. And then something kind of dawned on me and I, I thought about same transfer. Now, just imagine, you, you get a balance transfer offer and then you move all your debt of this credit card uh, onto the new one and then there's no interest and there's no even joining fee and all, all those fees and charges so it's, it's free for a while but somehow miraculously the, the bank makes an error and that balance transfer that was made is gone just um, it disappeared so all the debt that you had in one account is now taken away and it is now not in this second account which uh, should be there, but, but it's not there. And, and I suppose that would be a good news if you are somewhat you know, morally uh, not righteous or not upright, you take advantage of that and say that, hey, uh, my, my debt is all gone. But obviously, uh, that's just an illustration. But, but that's in a way what the Bible says. In Isaiah chapter 53, as you all know, in verse 5 and 6, it says, he was wounded for our transgressions, ours. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we 
are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And that's what we call vicarious death. We've done all the bad things, and he has borne all that sin and paid the penalty in full. Now, listen. It is not right to forgive without paying the price for our sin. God would not be just if he just forgave us without paying the price, and that is the death of Jesus Christ. And because of that, because of that, God would not be just if he didn't forgive us. And that's why here he says, he is faithful because he keeps his promises. Whatever he says he will do, he said. And he's also just and he's righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is all because of what Christ has done. He's, he's paid the penalty in full, completely and eternally. So no more payment of penalty is required. If you get a fine and, and you pay that, they say you still have to pay, what do you do? You don't just pay the second time for the same uh, breach of the law. You say that I've paid, you produce the receipt, and you don't need to pay again. Now God received that prize from Christ. And we have a receipt, the Bible. And there's no need for us to pay that penalty again. And that's why he has to forgive us to be faithful and to be righteous and to be just. So, he says if you confess our sins, if that's what's happening in your life, this is a test for genuine faith. If you're confessing habitually, then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you lie and try to deny, then that's, that's not walking in the light. <clears throat> so, real Christians, genuine Christians confess their sins and they have the blessing of forgiveness. And second point is in verse 1, chapter 2, my little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if, or even if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, attorney, our spokesman with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The perfect sinless man who died for our sins is still living and interceding on our behalf, and he is our advocate. So when we sin, our conscience and the devil may accuse us, but Christ is our advocate. He speaks on our behalf. In fact, the one who paid the price is the one who is most confident to defend sinners. If you've actually paid the price and received a receipt, then you are the best person to go and argue the case. Likewise, because Jesus actually paid the price on the cross, he is the best person to be our advocate. He doesn't delegate that work to someone else or to some other angel even. He does it himself. And his blood is a symbol that represents his death, giving of life, paying the price for our sins, and he still shows that nail marks on his hands and side that was pierced with a spear to the Lord God. And God gladly accepts that, and he is satisfied. He is satisfied. So in verse 2, he says, he is our propitiation. Propitiation. Propitiation simply means uh, he was a peace offering. He was almost, um, as it were, injected or imputed with our sin. 
And the counterpart of that is expiation. Sins were extracted and taken out of us and it was all placed on Christ. And he paid the price and the just penalty was death on the cross. So even if we sin, we have this assurance that we have forgiveness because he is our advocate in chapter 2, verse 1. And the third point, the last point is really this. Going back to verse 1, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. So the goal is that you may not sin, our sanctification. And Christian ministry is to change the inside of redeemed people. It is not to modify behaviors and try to change people in their behaviors and conduct on the outside only, but it is to change our inside. Sanctification is inward transformation. It begins with inward transformation, which flows out to our outward actions. Justification was something that happened inside. And sanctification begins from inside, and glorification is the final culmination of the change on the outside. We are transformed even in our bodies to be conformed to his image, to be glorified like the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is all by God's grace. We have justification and glorification, and in between is sanctification. And that's where we are. Uh, we are in various places in our race, as it were, and we are to strive for holiness and godliness and sanctification. And yes, we do have our responsibility to do, but at the same time, we have to acknowledge that this is all by God's grace, and I cannot do it alone. It is all by God's grace, and He's enabling. And just going back to that point that I mentioned earlier, just to admit and acknowledge that I still have sin is a kind of beginning step, and that is by God's grace as well. And just a little note is uh, that I'm not really trying to make people feel depressed or feel very down uh, by saying that we are sinful and we have sins and we have to confess and repent. I say this because first the Bible says that and second it is for our blessing. In fact, the deeper your sorrow for your sin is, the greater the joy for forgiveness will be in your life. It works like that. It's a kind of paradoxical statement but we need to have more sadness and sorrow so that we might have greater joy and uh, even happiness in our lives. And that's all by God's grace. I do pray and hope that this message will really work in your hearts so that, you know, even practically next time you are given some correction, rebuke by fellow Christian, by the Holy Spirit, that we react or respond in a godly way and confess our sins so that we might get forgiveness and be sanctified by God's grace. Because when that happens inside, the real growth happens. And when that happens, then that'll translate to external growth, uh, both individually and as a church. I say this to, to our church uh, all the time. Now, when, when we look after our uh, in, inward depth, then God will look after the breadth or the external growth of the church. Uh, in, you know, instead of trying to come up with all the programs to draw people to the church, let's focus on working within ourselves first and make sure that we are right with God and we work on the depth of our spiritual life. And then God will add on to us those who are being saved and that will all happen by God's grace. So may this be an encouragement to you all. Let's all pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and I do feel that we have only touched and scratched the surface, really. Lord, I pray that we can all go away and study this passage in more depth, not merely to accumulate our knowledge of the word of God, but, also, but just go and do this word in our lives. May we practice this truth, and we pray that we can all be sanctified as we confess our sins and as we are cleansed from, from all unrighteousness, and even that we will be protected from even uh, temptations that might come at us in the future. We pray for our church here in Dromoyne. We pray for this faithful congregation, that you'd work in them, that they would be more like you, so that your image would be shining through them, so that the people in this community may see you through them, and that they would come and hear your word, and that you would add on to these people, more people who are being saved. May you continue to grow this congregation as you will, and we pray that your will be done on earth in this place as it is in heaven. Thank you and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.